A Church. If I haven't gotten to meet you before, my name is Ben. I do a lot with our youth ministry here at PBC, and I'm also in my third year studying at Mauling Bible College. And it's my pleasure today to be able to bring the Word of God to you. And we have a really special passage in plan for today. You know, we as a church are in the third week of our current series, Praying Big Prayers, which is all about encouraging us as followers of an almighty God to pray like we're followers of an almighty God. You know, as we've been speaking about how we can pray into our sent places and pray for the world as a whole, we've been going through some massive prayers in the Bible that speak about the faithfulness of God and the power of prayer. Kathy led us through the story of Daniel and Last week, Steve led us through the story of Nehemiah. And I really want to encourage you to look at those if you haven't yet watched them. And thankfully, because of the times that we're in, that's suddenly a lot easier to do. Well, today, we're going to look at a huge and powerful prayer prayed by Elijah in 1 Kings 18. But before we actually do that, I want to just give us a little bit of context so that we know what's actually going on here. So all throughout the Bible is this constant theme around the kingdom of God. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks about it a lot, but it's also pretty consistent in the Old Testament as well. Graham Goldsworthy speaks about the kingdom of God being centered around this idea of having God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Now we see an image of this in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, but because of humanity's sinfulness, this image is lost. And so the tension that we see throughout scripture is this massive progression for God's people as they kind of come towards this fulfillment of God's kingdom. And we can see this in the covenant promises that God makes with his people. You know, he makes promises um, around them becoming a nation under him. He makes promises around giving them land. Um, and in order so that the people can be with him under his rule and blessing, God also gives them the law so that they can be made holy and enter in his presence. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God's people in some places coming closer and closer to the kingdom being fulfilled as the promises are fulfilled. But unfortunately, more often than that, time and time again, the people tend to go completely the opposite direction. And once the Israelites are an established people with their own land given by God, they begin to look around at all the nations around them and see that they all have kings. And so they go, oh, well, maybe maybe we should have some kings. And so the first three kings that they install are probably the most well-known. We have Saul, David, and Solomon. But then after that, you know, the kingdom splits into two, and then we have this massive succession of king after king after king. And with each king that is installed the people of God slowly start to step further and further away from being God's people. And they become more and more like the world. And they even started to worship idols and gods of other nations in place of Yahweh. And then in 1 Kings 17, we learn about Ahab, who becomes the next king of Israel. Now, King Ahab is a pretty bad dude. He sets up a temple and an altar to the god Baal, and he even sets up a Asherah poles to the god Asherah. And in fact, in 1 Kings 17, it says, Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord than did all the kings of Israel before him. Not really someone that I would choose to have be the leader of God's people, but anyway. So Ahab's kingship is really actually indicative of just how far apart from God the people of Israel are. You know, this is a nation that have forgotten their God. 
And now they're, they're seeking to be like the rest of the world by worshipping their gods instead of Yahweh. And it's in this context that we meet the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah's pretty amazing. And when we first meet him, he's speaking to Ahab and he proclaims that by the power of God, there will be no more rain in the land except at his word. Now, this might seem a little bit random and I mean, it kind of is, but the effect of this is twofold. So the first is that the absence of rain is symbolic of the absence of God's blessing and presence in their land because of their disobedience. They're no longer following the law, so they can't be made holy, and so they can't enter God's presence and experience that blessing. But secondly, this is also a direct challenge to Baal and his worshippers. Baal was apparently worshipped as the god of rain and dew, So to proclaim that by the power of Elijah's God, Yahweh, there would be no rain is actually really significant. Already Yahweh is asserting that he is the one who holds power, not Baal, not Asherah, no other God. Yahweh is God of Israel. So three years pass with no rain. The Israelites are in drought and famine and they've gotten so desperate that King Ahab goes himself to try and search for some water. And he also sends another man, Obadiah, who's a man of God, to look in another direction. And at the same time, the word of God comes to Elijah. And he is told to finally, after three years with no rain, to go and speak to Ahab. And all of that is what leads us to our passage that we're looking at today. So let's read it. The reading today is from 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 36 to 46. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed up the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rainstorm came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. One of my lecturers at college used to always say that one of the best ways to start off reading scripture is to try and find something that's funny about the passage. Now, I don't know how legitimate that is, but I think that it is so hilarious how confident Elijah is that Baal will be defeated by Yahweh. 
He's he's so extra and over the top. He's even going to the point where he's pouring liters and liters of water over his own altar, and he's even like taunting the followers of Baal. I mean, the poor guys. I don't know how you react to that, but I just think that is so funny how confident he is, and he is confident because Elijah he knows exactly who his God is. He knows that Yahweh is Almighty and powerful and faithful, and there is no doubt in Elijah's mind that God will do something. Now, there's a lot to draw out in this passage. So, what I actually want to do is ask you first: What's something that sticks out to you from this passage? And it can be something funny, or it can be something amazing or thought-provoking. Anything. What stands out to you from this passage? And if you're in a group of people, maybe you can get into groups of twos or threes and just discuss what stands out to you, and then we can come back to it. Well, in this passage just read, we see God sending Elijah to his people, and with him is the coming of Yahweh in both fire and in rain. Coming back to Israel, Elijah exhorts the Israelites to make a decision: choose between Yahweh or Baal. In the NIV, he says, "How long will you waver between two opinions?" What's great, though, is actually in the ESV, it translates it as, "How long will you go limping between two opinions?" Which I think is actually such a fascinating picture that to follow two gods or to even attempt to practice two conflicting ideologies, it's it's almost like walking with a limp. Elijah challenges the Israelites, and they have nothing to say in response. So Elijah then challenges the 950 prophets of Baal and Asherah that have pervaded the Israelites, and the challenge that Elijah sets is simple: You guys set up an altar, do whatever you want to it, just don't set it on fire, and then pray that Baal sends fire from the heavens to prove his might. I'll do the same, and then finally we'll be able to see whose God actually reigns over Israel. So the bar worshippers go first because there's more of them, and you know they try their hardest. They're shouting as loud as they can. They're getting out all the dance moves that they can think of, and they're even so desperate to go to the point of slashing themselves. And yet we read in verse 29, there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. The Israelites had really gotten it wrong, hadn't they? They had been so influenced by the world around them that they'd forgotten the one who had already done so much for them. They exchanged the blessings of their God for a cheaper version that just didn't compare. I wonder if we ever do that. Do we ever exchange the blessings and the teachings of our Lord Jesus for a cheaper version that the world has to offer? Why? Well, Elijah calls the people over to him. He sets up the altar, places twelve stones on it to represent the twelve tribes that make up God's people. He builds a trench around it, arranges the wood and the bull, and then he pours twelve jars of water over it as well, just to prove how cool God is. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone camping and tried to start a fire by pouring water all over the wood, but it it just doesn't work. It's pretty ridiculous that that's what he does. And then Elijah prays one of the biggest prayers ever. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, 
and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. What I love about this prayer is that it's all about God. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known that you are God in Israel. See, it speaks into God's faithfulness throughout history. By calling him the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Elijah sets up the idea that this is the God of generations. This is the God of the Israelites' ancestors. This is the God who made those promises, who fulfilled those promises. This is the God who saved them out of slavery and captivity in Egypt. And then he also speaks into God's sovereignty as the one who is actually God over Israel. It's not Baal, it's not Asherah, it's Yahweh. And then Elijah comes as one who is under God. I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Elijah's not calling the shots here. He is just a servant who is there because God sent him and he's there to do God's will. And he recognizes that. And then he requests action. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Other translations say so that they may know that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back, which does have different theological connotations there. But the general gist of what Elijah is saying here is he's asking Yahweh to do something. Not so that the people can see how good or faithful or amazing Elijah is, but so that people can remember God and so that they can have their hearts turned back to worshipping him as the one and only God of Israel. And so the story continues, obviously. And immediately after praying, the power of God is made known in the falling of fire from the heavens. It burns up the altar and completely licks up all the water that was in the trench. And the people's response, they fall prostrate and cry, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Yahweh is God. The change in understanding for the people of Israel here is remarkable, isn't it? You know, they were a people who were tiptoeing between being a follower of the God of their ancestors, Yahweh, and following Baal, which is just what everyone else was doing. And before this competition set up by Elijah, they, they were silent when Elijah exhorted them to choose a God. But now, faced once again with the full glory and power of Yahweh, they fall to the ground and praise him with everything that they have. And of course, the power and position of God as one who is victorious is represented in the seizing of all the Baal prophets. And this huge change in heart for the people of Israel is reflected in the coming of rain for the first time in three years. It's this release from a physical starvation, but also a spiritual starvation of God's blessing and presence. Now, as I said, there's a lot to pull out of this passage but I mostly want to pick out two main points. And the first is that the people of God is a description, not just a title. God's people is a description, not just a title. And the second point that I want to make 
is that a faith-filled prayer comes from recognizing God as the faithful one. You see, there's something of a distinguishable purpose and holiness for all of Jesus' followers that should set us apart from the rest of the world. When we look at Jesus' life, we see someone ministering to others with a kind of love that was countercultural. It's almost as though Jesus made an effort to be distinct from those around him because he was different to those around him. And because of his sacrifice and the new life that we are given in him, we are called to be different as well. Romans 12 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have been renewed. So let's live in light of this transformation that we've been given. Elijah knew Yahweh and he stood against the rest of his people because he knew that Yahweh was faithful and and he was the only one who was Lord over Israel. So how much more can we then, as people on the other side of the promises of God being fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus, how much more then can we understand that our God is faithful and powerful? This call to live differently is something that's existed since the beginning of the church. I mean, when you look at key individuals and groups throughout the history of the Christian faith, you can see that we come from a long line of people who have been taken up this call and made so many strides to live a life that is distinguishable and points towards Jesus. I mean, when you look at the early church in Revelation, you see that they're encouraged not to conform to the imperial cult that was all about worshipping the Roman emperor. They were told to remember that it is Jesus who sits on the throne. Not any other person or God or emperor. Jesus alone is victorious. And the encouragement is there for us as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor and theologian in Nazi Germany, said that true grace should come at a cost for believers. He says such grace is costly because it costs something their life, costs someone their life rather. And it is grace because it gives someone the only true life. See, grace is a free gift given to us by God, don't get me wrong, but it's costly in that the transformation that occurs in us means that we are made different to how we once were. We have a new life in Jesus and are given a holiness that sets us apart and should define us outside of worldly ideas. Just like Elijah and like so many others throughout church history who have met Jesus and who know his power, there is a call for all of us to live a prayerful and faithful life as well. We are made with a different purpose, so let's live in light of that. And the second point I want to make is pretty simple. In order to pray boldly and with an expectant faith like Elijah did, we need to recognize God as one who is faithful and who holds power over everything. Throughout scripture, whenever the people of God were losing faith, the writers of the Old and New Testaments, the psalmists, the prophets, the religious leaders, the apostles, they're consistently exhorting the people to remember what God has done for them already. It's almost like they're saying, I know it may be hard to see what God is doing right now, but remember what he's done for you already. Remember how he made those promises. Remember how he gave us a nation. Remember how he gave us land. Remember how he saved us and brought us out of slavery in Egypt. Remember how he redeemed us from being in exile. Surely he can do it again. And, you know, we have scripture. We can read those stories and see the faithfulness of God 
throughout those generations. But don't we also have our own experiences with God? I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've experienced coming out of darkness and being shown light, if you've experienced being raised from death to life with Jesus' resurrection, then you know exactly the kind of faithfulness and power that we're talking about here. And surely you can pray the same thing over our world. You can pray that for those who are in hopelessness, you can pray that they would be given hope. You know, 2020 is a year that for a lot of people has been absolutely terrible. I mean, you only have to log on to Facebook or Instagram for a few seconds before you see a post or a meme about just how bad 2020 has been for so many. People have lost loved ones. I think we've seen the worst come out in some people, including sometimes ourselves. And I think there's just a general sense of uncertainty and unease about what might still be in store for us. It's been a scary year with everything that's been going on, and it's easy for people to be feeling hopeless or lost or distraught. But, you know, I don't think 2020 has to be a year that goes down in the history books as just a bad year. And don't get me wrong, it's been really, really tough. But I think that instead of just accepting that this year will end in a place of hopelessness, why don't we pray instead for an outpouring of hope for all people? What if 2020 was a year where all have experienced darkness and pain and sickness and hardship, but all are made free and are given new life and new hope and purpose and the kind of peace that transcends all understanding that can only come from Jesus Christ our Lord? Elijah spoke and prayed into a time where almost everyone had turned from the living God to follow idols and false gods. He spoke into a time of famine when everyone was without water and food and was seriously lacking. The people were lost, hungry, sick and living in darkness. And yet Elijah prayed. And it's not just a timid prayer filled with hopeful assertions either. Elijah prayed a prayer that expected God to do something incredible against all the odds. He knew his God And he knew the transformation that God could bring. So he prayed with faith. So as we come to the issue of 2020 on an individual and a global scale, let's come to it with the same heart as Elijah. We know that our God is good and powerful and faithful because we've experienced it ourselves. So let's pray with the same kind of faith. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, and Elijah. Let it be known today that you are God in all the world and that we are your servants. Answer me, Lord. Answer us so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Amen.